0: It's a question of realizing that's going to happen, so you've got to manage the shit.
1: Welcome, welcome Alpha, from two Omega, omega. Two on. On. We're We're flat. Welcome. Alpha. I'd like to make the outrageous claim alpha. that has a little bit of truth. Bit. All of this yeah. things that's happening now the with flat. the computer, the flat. digitalization flat. of our society, alpha. of information, uh, you could say in a way. Is the result of a philosophical question that was raised by uh, David Hilbert at the beginning of the century not a complete lie to say that Turing invented the computer in order to shed light on a philosophical question about the foundations of mathematics that was asked by Hilbert. So it's as if the whole economy today is being run to keep the bank solvent, not to produce mortgage and services, not to raise living standards, but all for the uh, aim of uh, increasing bank profits.
0: Everyone has to line up and sing hosannas to their leaders. That's the job of intellectuals. Round up the chorus so they all sing praises to your leaders while they march in the parade and tell you how magnificent we are. And that's the historic task of intellectuals.
2: Hello, and welcome to the thirteenth episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 1st of September 2012, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today's show is sponsored by good friend Leon T. Thanks for the donation, Leon. If you'd like to help keep the show on the road, please click on the donate buttons on the podcast website. You can also join the From Alpha to Omega group on Facebook, where you can say hello and share your thoughts. Today's guest is the world-renowned economist Steve Keane, Professor in Economics and Finance at the University of Western Sydney. Steve was one of the few economists in the world to predict the current crisis in detail years before it happened. He did it so well, in fact, that he won the award for being the economist who first and most accurately warned the world of the coming global financial collapse. Steve considers most economists and the standard neoclassical synthesis as deluded and wrote the brilliant debunking economics where he lays out his criticisms in all their gory detail. He considers himself a member of the post-Keynesian school of economics and has spent a good part of his career applying the lessons of chaos and complexity theory to try and build an empirically and theoretically sound theory of how a monetary capitalist economy like ours actually works. He also pens the brilliant blog Steve Keen's Debt Watch. So, Steve, I'm currently making my way through Hyman Minsky's Stabilizing an Unstable Economy. He is one of your economic inspirations are his main insights into the functioning of a
0: capitalist economy? Well, the first thing I'm going to tell you, Tom, is put that book down and buy a decent one. That's his worst book. I can't think of an, a decent analogy, but I suppose that's a bit like watching uh, the worst movie ever by Peter Sellers and wondering why people thought he was funny.
1: <laughs> wash, the elephant.
0: You've heard about those Hollywood
1: parties. Now, Peter Sellers invites you to the party.
0: If you've ever been to a wilder party,
1: you're under arrest.
0: Uh, Stabilizing an Unstable Economy is one of two books Minsky publishes, but it was far and away worse than the first one he did, which he actually called John Maynard Keynes. The title is actually like a payee to Keynes praising him after Minsky originally had the typical attitude that Americans have to Keynes, Keynes of believing he was John Hicks and drag. So uh, throw that book away. How far have you got into it?
2: Well, I've about halfway through. I must be pretty boring because I'm finding it quite good.
0: <laughs> um, well, if you try reading Can It Happen Again, you'll get there much more rapidly. That's the book of readings by, by Minsky. Uh, basically journal papers and opinion pieces he wrote put together into a larger book all around the financial instability hypothesis. But the first serious treatment was his John Maynard Keynes book. And what I liked about Minsky is that I've read many, many critics, critics of capitalism, many, many attempts to analyze it. And Minsky's in John Maynard Keynes, which is the first time I was exposed to his ideas back in 1987, what I saw was, to me, the first truly coherent vision of both the strengths and weaknesses of capitalism. Often a lot of critics of capitalism will... The Marxists talk about what they call the declining rate of profit. So they see capitalism as being doomed by a tendency for the rate of profit to fall over time, leading to capitalists squeezing workers more, leading to social revolt, bang income, socialism, and on goes nirvana after that. Or uh, people arguing that capitalism will suffer from underconsumption, so its capacity to produce will exceed its capacity to consume, and therefore you'll slowly tend into a depressed state where the goods get produced, people don't buy them, and it's a lack of demand that keeps it rolling. Minsky, by contrast, argued that the fundamental instability of capitalism is upwards. I think the phrase goes something like this to say that the fundamental problem of capitalism is the tendency to turn doing well into a euphoric speculative boom. Now, that's precisely what I saw as being the nature of capitalism over the previous 30 or 40 years of my own existence, where there'd be a period of comparatively tranquil growth which would then lead to a period of excessive optimism by capitalists, involving very speculative investment projects, and often financed by large amounts of borrowed money. Which would then cause a galloping rate growth, leading to a collapse. They'd come crunching down, and you'd have a debt, uh, a debt crisis, in the aftermath, where many of those firms would go bankrupt, and a period of depression would ensue. Which ultimately you'd find, you know, the people extrapolating forward bad conditions, uh, the economy actually recovering during that period, people getting their cash flow balances back in order again, and you then revive once more, and off we'd go yet again, but with the tendency for that debt ratio to rise. So that, that vision, I thought, was quite a coherent vision of both the strengths and weaknesses of capitalism. And I then looked at Minsky's own work and realized that he'd failed to build a decent mathematical model of it, not because it couldn't be done, but because he, like most economists, chose the right foundations for doing it. So I made that my uh, uh, one of my life ambitions to do so.
2: So what were the mathematical innovations you brought to his approach?
0: Well, actually, I was lucky in some ways that when my training in mathematics post-dated when Minsky did his, he actually had a mathematics degree, I believe, before he did his economics degree, but he learned it back in the 1940s. And that predates our knowledge of what we now call complexity theory, which we we'll first call chaos theory. And that's this idea that when you have nonlinear relations between variables in a system, the system's behaviour can't be reduced to... So the whole is more than the sum of the parts. It can have a system which is locally stable but globally unstable. So if you have a linear system, and this is the, the way that neoclassical economics tends to treat the world, it tries to reduce everything to linear relations... A linear system, if it's stable near the equilibrium, it's stable an infinite distance away. So any any unstable system also necessarily breaks down in a linear system. And the reality is we actually learned at the end of the 19th century in a formal sense that this wasn't a way of describing all of reality through mathematics from the great French mathematician Poincaré. But in 1967, his knowledge was rediscovered by Lorenz, the man who gave us the idea of the butterfly, effect the idea of a butterfly flapping its wings in America causing a typhoon in in China now what it, what it comes down to is that if you have this a linear relations then if you have a, a force of 5 and you make it a force of 50 then the force of 50 is precisely 10 times as strong with force of force of 5 and you can easily scale things in that way but a nonlinear relationship is a bit like multiplying X by y and even hex x times y when they're both one it's pretty small, X by Y when they're both ten, it's damn large. So you therefore have the dynamics of a system differing depending on how far you're away from its equilibrium. And that mathematics meant I knew that if I put together a model of a cyclical economy and add in Minsky's vision about the tendency for capitalism to borrow money during a boom and repay during a slump, then I could possibly capture the dynamic he spoke about, about the tendency of capitalism to go through a series of bubbles where after each bubble it accumulates more debt, Leading ultimately to a crisis like the Great Depression. And uh, that's precisely what happened when I put the first model together, building on Goodwin's growth cycle model, which is a, a nonlinear dynamic model of a cyclical economy.
2: So these types of mathematics were
0: commonly used in engineering and
2: designing boats
0: and ships. Yeah, yeah. You, any, like an engineer normally knows that it's starting with a system which is unstable. And therefore, what you've got to do as an engineer is design ways to make it stable. If you have a, like you know, even a car going on a road, fundamentally that's an unstable system because the faster it goes, the more likely it is to be diverted left or right, and that's why you've got a steering wheel. And, of course, the steering wheel itself has got systems built into it to make sure you don't oversteer at the wrong time, and so on and so forth. So engineers are used to controlling unstable systems. Economists made this mythical belief that capitalism was fundamentally stable. And the irony is that there's been... Uh, a century of mathematical work showing that this is simply sim- simply impossible, but economists continue believing it because I think they're still trying to prove Adam Smith right about the idea of the invisible hand. It's very commonplace mathematics that I'm applying in economics, but the ironic thing is it's extremely uncommon mathematics inside economics when economics tries to pretend that it's a mathematical social science.
2: So can you talk about the actual outcomes you got from, say, your best models, what what it actually showed would happen?
0: Well, probably the best starting point is the very first model I built of, of Minsky, which I did back in 1993 and was published in 1995 in the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics. That's a model where I took Goodwin's growth cycle model, and that then gives you a cyclical system. If you actually simulate the system, and I do this in my paper and also on some blog posts quite regularly, you get a permanent cycling around employment uh, going up and down, wager share going up and down, and growth growing in a cyclical way over time. A very, very simple cyclical model, and I believe it's actually the core cycle, or one of the two core cycles in capitalism. So I simply added to that and saying, well, hang on a sec, capitalists don't invest all their profits. They invest less than their profits during a slump and more than their profits during a boom. Of course, to invest more than profits, you either have to have savings or you have a banking sector. First of all, modeled it just by saying they effectively save during a a slump and and spend more during a boom. And that simply made the system more eccentric without changing the basic cycles. But I then added in that they borrowed money from the banking sector and the banking sector charges interest for that borrowing. So I brought in a third system state, which is the ratio of debt to income. And that particular model had two fundamental equilibria one of which was what uh, a new mathematical colleague of mine, the Professor of Mathematics at McMaster University, Matthias Grasselli, calls the good equilibrium, which is where you had a positive employment rate, a positive wages share, and also positive profit and positive banker's income, and a non-infinite ratio of debt to income. So
2: basically an, a normally functioning good, productive economy.
0: Yeah, that's the equilibrium you want to get to. But it had a second equilibrium where you had zero employment, Zero wage share and infinite debt. And that's what you can effectively call a black hole of debt. And the great problem was that both these equilibria could be stable under various conditions. So that if you're close to the good equilibria in the simple model I ran, then you'd, you'd converge to it. But if you move too far away from that equilibrium, then you got within the range where you could get attracted to the bad one, which is, ends up with you know zero employment, zero uh, wage share and infinite debt. And that system is stable if you get too close to it you get dragged back into it again so that i now think is best called the black hole of debt and it's the same sort of thing as an event horizon where if you get too close to the black hole and the black hole is, gets to be too big then you get sucked in and nothing you can do can stop you further into it unless the black hole itself shrinks or you somehow reduce the attractive power which in that case we will gravity is what applies to black holes and we can't reduce that but in the case of debt of course you can reduce the interest rate and that therefore makes the whole less attractive, so long as you don't fall into deflation, which of course massively amplifies the the, the uh, attractiveness in the, in the bad sense of the black hole. One potential way out of it is to have a government sector, because the role of the government fundamentally is to create money, as well as the private sector's capacity to create money and aggregate demand. And government's money creation is independent of what the private sector does. And when it creates that money, push you away by giving extra demand to firms and individuals that might otherwise fall into infinite debt, enabling them to pay their way out of that debt. So there's a reasonable verbal description of the model. But once you include that particular, no banking sector, which, of course, is unrealistic. With no banking sector, you just got permanent cycles. When you add in a banking sector, you've got two possibilities, a good equilibrium of convergence to a stable system, a bad equilibrium where debt wipes out everything, and the great danger being that, the financial sector actually has a motive to get us towards that situation because the more debt the more income they make and then a government sector which is like repels you from the bad equilibrium but what it can actually generate is cyclical behavior complex cyclical behavior and that's what's known as a strange attractor and uh, all that mathematics is in my 1995 paper and is now being explored in more detail by mathematicians these days
2: So. In the system, you basically have two attractors. So if we were to kind of imagine like two suns and that the economy is jagging around like the planet Earth and it's cycling maybe around the good sun, but it can easily change and be attracted to, say, like the bad sun. That's precisely
0: the analogy, yeah. Very, very similar ideas that apply to it because, for example, with black holes, we know that uh, courtesy of Stephen Hawking's work that, Black holes were thought to always grow indefinitely, but they showed that a rotating black hole actually had what we call Hawking's radiation, which means it emits some of its matter. It's a quantum mechanical effect going on there because you've got this capacity for matter to come into existence spontaneously. you can have matter appearing on the inside and outside of a black hole at the event horizon, and that causes the black hole actually to shrink over time. We call that bankruptcy, writing off debt. And if you actually write the debt off, then you reduce the power of the debt to attract you further into the hole. And this is partly why I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm campaigning, because my models actually indicate that if we could actually reduce the scale of the debt, then you can get out of the black hole and get trapped into it. But it's realizing that that, that black hole effect is something which the capitalist system has a tendency towards for two reasons. One, this whole speculative behavior of capitalists that, that Minsky spoke about and two, of course, the on the overlay of what he called Ponzi finance, that people actually make money by selling assets on a rising market even though they're fundamentally bankrupt. But also the banking sector itself, and this is later work that I've done trying to model money creation out of the work of the circuit theorists, of, 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 of particularly of Italy and of Europe in general. The banking can create money endogenously, and because the more debt it creates compared to income, the more a share of national income it's it's got a bias to actually want us to take on more debt and if we're foolish enough to fall for one of these you know asset bubbles which themselves are caused by rising debt then we drive ourselves in this direction end up in a crisis and if we've done it really ever since the south sea bubble if not even before that with the, with the tulip crisis with the uh, tulip craze we have to realize this is an endemic aspect of the nature of our social system and unless we acknowledge that, and thereby say, okay, we have to allow debt to be abolished on occasions, then we're going to be stuck in the bloody hole forever. Japan
2: have, have essentially been stuck in this hole for 20 years. Is this our future?
0: Yeah, I've said it back back when I read the first edition of Debunking Economics, I used that classic phrase in the vapors that we could be turning Japanese. It's horrific to be proven true with a proposition like that, but that's certainly what's happened. And now you look at where we are now, we, you and I talking late August, uh, 2012, date the crisis of August 9, 2007, when the Bank National of the Paris shut down three of its funds that were exposed to the subprime market in America. That's five years. They talk about Japan's lost decade, which of course is now two lost decades. But we're halfway to our first. And obviously you look around Europe in particular and America for that matter too. There's, ob- there's no way that we've uh, worked out any way out of this crisis already after five years.
2: So Japan never actually quashed their debts. They kept in place zombie banks and their power structure in the society. Why do you think the West might enact a debt jubilee, as opposed to just muddle their way through for twenty years?
0: Well, because we can't. Japan had the advantage of exporting to the rest of the world during the whole price crisis. That's why Japan had such a heavy hit to this financial crisis when it began, because suddenly its export and bang, it's going to be into an even deeper hole. So far as we know, I don't think the Mars Explorers found a market for our goods on Mars. So the whole world can't export its way out of this problem. We don't have the muddle through chance that the Japanese had in terms of, you know, foreign trade enabling us to have a net positive. We also don't have as cohesive a society as Japan. We don't have the same capacity to share the burden. And if you see what's happening in Europe right now, that's a classic instance of how we're not Japan. There are plenty of you know, provincial, isolated provincial cities and tiny fishing villages in in, in Japan that have got a wonderful highway leading into them as part of the project to try to cause fiscal stimulus to counteract the impact of the, the downturn. That isn't happening in Europe and it's not going to happen in Europe and we're far more likely to see tanks on roads than to see new roads being built.
2: How long do you think that banks will be able to pretend that they're okay and corporations will be able to pretend they're okay by not realizing their loans? How long can this kick the can down the road, continue?
0: Well, the trouble is, as long as they continue bailing the banks out, they can get away with it pretty much indefinitely. This is a great tragedy. We're actually bailing out the wrong institutions because the banks actually caused the problem. And trying to keep them at their current size and help them survive their past mistakes is actually the, a huge part of the cause of the problem. So the government could keep on doing it for, for ten and fifteen years. I think what'll stop it is people finally saying enough, because the obvious side of res- rescuing those banks are the austerity imposed on national governments. It's only a question of time, as far as I'm concerned, before we see the revolts in America, in Europe like we saw in the 1930s, and that's not a particularly pleasant thought.
1: The Stop thinking and follow me, cried Hitler. I will make you masters of the world. And the people answered, Heil! Heil! stop thinking and believe in me, bellowed Mussolini. And I will restore the glory that was wrong. And the people answered, Duce, Duce. Stop thinking and follow your god-emperor, cried the Japanese warlords. And Japan will rule the world. And the people answered, bonsai, bonsai.
2: You have a few different proposals for how to get out of this situation. Can you talk us through
0: quantitative easing for the public? The idea would be that you, you know, the injection which was equivalent, for example, to 50% of pay, You put that 50% of GDP, and you would reduce debt. By something like 25% of GDP, let's say when went half to borrowers and half to savers, and savers who would otherwise be disadvantaged by a straight debt jubilee would find themselves with a large cash injection, and that would compensate the fact that reducing the debt of the debtors would actually reduce the value of any bonds that the savers had bought off banks. The whole, whole effect of that would be to have be non-discriminatory between savers and borrowers in the public, but reduce the size of the income-earning assets of the financial sector and reduce the debt burden on society. And that's what I think we need to do to start getting out of this crisis.
2: If we don't start doing these type of policies, how do you see the actual crisis continuing? What is the direction of the crisis?
0: Well... Crisis has caused too much private debt, and then the reversal of that as people started to delever, meaning that rather than rising debt, adding to aggregate demand, you had falling debt, subtracting from aggregate demand. That will continue going on until deleveraging slows down substantially, and if history is any guide, that, in America's case, for example, might start to happen when debt has fallen from where it currently is, which is 250% to 100% of GDP. But it's taken from 2009 to 2012 to fall 50% of GDP. And if we look at the Great Depression, the peak level of debt back then was 240% of GDP. And it took the Great Depression and the Second World War before it had fallen back down to 50% of GDP. Now, that's 15 years. And in fact, our debt level now was higher than during the Great Depression, three percent of GDP versus 250, 240. So... Took the American economy 15 years to go from 175 percent to 50 percent and get out of the crisis, and we're starting at 300. It could take 15 to 20 years before the general milieu of being in a deflationary environment is over. And again, Japan's the best example of that. And I know people think, God, you can't be serious. It couldn't take, you know, t- two decades to get out of this. Well, we all know that Japan has been in a crisis like this for two decades. So, yes, it can take that long to get out of a crisis like this.
2: And it could take longer because there's no place to export to.
0: Yeah, that's right. There's no other other salve. So, we, we you know the, the Japanese had an easy little trick that we can't pull. So,
2: we could literally be seeing the West in a 30 to 40 year depression.
0: I think by that stage political change would get in the way. The reason the last one ended in some ways was the Second World War. We know the Second World War was by the rise of fascism in Europe and the rise of fascism occurred because it was pushed upon the German people. It isn't the Germans who are copying it this time around. History doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. Well, you know, the rhyming couplets this time around are occurring on the borders of the Mediterranean rather than the Northern Europe. But to me, it's only a matter of time before a genuine political revolt because there, whether that's a military one or, you know, a a, a right-wing party of the nature of the the Greek fascist party taking over and just tearing up some of these treaties and then going into stimulus programs that, in fact, were the reason the Nazis were so popular back in Germany. One of the few books in economics I think is worth reading by John Blatt book called Dynamic Economic Systems. And Blatt was actually, he's Austrian by background, but uh, Australian by residence. He was a professor of applied mathematics, a brilliant mind. He actually twice was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, didn't get, get it, but was nominated twice. Late in his life, got interested in economics and couldn't believe the garbage that was spouted by a neoclassical economist. So he wrote a book called Dynamic Economic Systems, a Post-Keynesian Approach. And as part of that, and one of the afterwards, I think he talked about what happened in in Nazi Germany and said that back at the time of the Nuremberg trials, one of the people on trial was the economic or the finance minister for the Nazis. Of course, his war crime was strengthening the Nazi economy and letting it uh, become so powerful that it could invade the rest of Europe. His defence was that he went along and he called Hitler conventional economic advice about how to get out of the crisis once Hitler became Chancellor. And Hitler laughed and in his face, kicked him out of the room because the guy what he told him was all oh, pay off your debts you know i don't know what involved devaluation but it was basically you know pay off the debts uh, run a budget surplus etc etc he said hitler laughed in my face and threw me out of the room and did the exact opposite so his defense against the war crime was that he his policies were the exact opposite of the ones the nazis followed well the the policies worked and they were the opposite of the austerity program that are, the europe is currently following And if they leave it to a party like the Nazis to come in and do that, then heaven help what Europe's going to turn into.
2: So you also have proposals for Jubilee
0: shares and proposals on the amount of debt that we can take out on mortgages. The fundamental idea here is that we we don't want to get us out of one crisis and set up the conditions of the next one. So if you look at what happened back in the Great Depression, the rules like the Glass Eagle Act, all those rules gave us a period of great stability. And one of Minsky's brilliant insights was that stability in a capitalist economy with sophisticated financial instruments and an uncertain future is destabilising. Now, exactly the same principle applies when you look at the behaviour of bureaucrats as well. A period of stability brought in by regulations will lead people to believe the stability is an inherent feature of the system, and particularly they're subject to lobbying by powerful forces. They'll repeal those very laws. So I look at the the side of Bill Clinton with his smiling face, applauding himself and being applauded by all his supporters as he's abolished the Glass-Steagall Act and nothing far more embarrassing than whatever he did with that, the cigar and Monica Lewinsky. So I'm going to try to find ways to actually prevent the financial sector from developing the power in the first place. And that really comes back to stopping the possibility of asset bubbles forming simply because the banking sector lends more money to gamble on assets. So the idea with, with both my property proposal and the uh, share proposal is to limit the degree of leverage that can be put against an asset to being based on the income the asset earns rather than based on the income of the buyer. That would be to say that the maximum amount of money that a bank could lend to finance a property purchase would be some multiple, let's say 10 times the income of the asset being purchased, not of the income of the buyer. So that would mean, for example, of a house-earned, twenty thousand euros then the maximum bank could lend against it would be two hundred and fifty thousand euros. But that's a lot less than the debt we see being issued these days. And it also removes the encouragement that individuals go and get higher leverage because if you and I are fighting over the same place in Dublin and, you know, you and I had the same income and the same savings, then you one of us who won would be the one who got a higher leverage loan from the bank. But if we know we can't get that, then the best way you and I can fight each other over a house is to save more money. So you get a negative relationship, therefore, between house prices and leverage rather than the, the positive one that leads to the crisis. The idea with shares is I've had people criticise as much as they see it as being unworkable. But ultimately, I'm just looking for a way to do the same thing with shares. So we have some way in which the, the leverage against a share is based on the income that the share is going to earn rather than based on the greater fill principle of, selling the share to a high, for a higher price to a later buyer. And the Jubilee share thing would do that by saying that a share, when it's bought off a company, lasts forever if you buy it and don't sell it. You can sell it up to seven times, so it can have that many you know, buyers and sellers, but after the seventh sale, which is an arbitrary biblical number, it becomes a Jubilee share and it will expire in 50 years no matter what. So the idea there is that after seven sales, you've got enough time for price discovery and you know, selling a share seven times is a fair number of sales, in fact. And at the end of it, it only gives an income stream for 50 years. So you're buying an annuity effectively and therefore you'd be an idiot to buy that annuity with borrowed money because ultimately its, it's terminal value was zero. So that is a way of trying to reduce the extent to which people take out margin loans and gamble on share prices on the on the greater full principle rather than buying shares as the, as they currently mythically argue in finance courses on the basis of the expected future earnings of the company. So it's all trying to limit the level of debt the level of income.
2: Would these Jubilee share proposals, would they push
0: speculation into commodities or some other class of investment? Uh, that's a possibility. But I think at that stage, if, if you manage to cauterize speculation from some property, you could put up with speculation elsewhere and basically say, anybody who speculates and loses money, tough titties. you know. But We're not going to rescue you. Whereas the, the great reason we have a double tragedy here is that as well as having a massive speculation leading to crises where people actually do go bankrupt, because we then regard the institutions that do that as being uh, absolutely essential to the functioning of capitalism, we rescue the bastards, and they then go and do it again. If we actually limited to a stage where was just people speculating on commodities and stuff like that, if they folded, they might take out 1% of the economy rather than folding and taking out 10% of the economy. So I just hope we could therefore live with the level of speculation that existed rather than being afraid of letting the consequences of speculation go through. Some people say that
2: speculation is neutral, that as much money that goes into betting on something going up is the same amount that will go on betting that it goes down. What's wrong with this picture?
0: It's leaving out the impact of rising debt. If that was actually true, that it was just a case of a zero-sum game, then there'd be no problem. And this is why neoclassical economists can't understand the financial system, because that's their vision of lending as well. They think that lending is Thomas lends to Steve, therefore Thomas' spending power goes down and Steve's spending goes up, and the level of debt has no macroeconomic impact. And I continue reading that in the posts of people like Brad DeLong and Paul Krugman and the whole neoclassical set. They continue making that a priori argument, therefore saying it doesn't matter. But... If that were true, then it wouldn't be an issue and there wouldn't be a crisis either. And they still can't explain where this crisis came from. So I say that I can prove it empirically and theoretically that aggregate changing levels of debt add to aggregate demand. And just as the government, central bank, can create money by double entry bookkeeping, so can the private sector banks. And they are not constrained by all the rules the government puts in charge there trying to stop what they're doing. So it's that capacity just by double entry bookkeeping to create money and add to aggregate demand, that you get the the trouble that the share market is not a zero-sum game, it's a positive-sum game when debt levels are rising, and it's a negative-sum game when those debt levels are falling. And we're now, of course, we've been for several years in the period where it's a negative-sum game.
2: I interviewed in a previous episode Ben Dyson from Positive Money. They have proposals for taking the power of credit creation completely away from the banks and putting it into democratic control. What do you think of such solutions as this?
0: Well, there I partly it's a sledgehammer approach to crack a nut, but then again, it's a very tough nut, so I'm not going to argue against it. But I have a slight problem about imagining that the government will create money at the right speed. One of the strengths of capitalism, this is where Sean Pater is very much worth reading, one of the strengths of capitalism is the capacity for money supply to expand when needed during a boom, when you have a new technology coming along, for example, like telecommunications. The fact that the banking sector or the financial system in general can expand and give demand to people who've got this new idea but don't actually necessarily have the money to put it into place the fact that that could be financed through capitalism is part of what grows so rapidly uh, when it does grow successfully and why it innovates so well. If you then hand the power of money creation over to the government, then there's no guarantee the government's going to create that money at the right speed and equally, partly, in some ways, the recklessness that goes with saying, well, here's the money. If you don't actually succeed, you still owe us the debt, so you're taking the risk is actually part of where the degree of, of sponsorship of new ideas come from in capitalism. I go to the stage where it's all government created and rely upon a committee of bureaucrats trying to make sure they get it right and I've again I've had enough experience with bureaucrats to make me slightly cynical about the extent to which they're willing to be innovative. All those things make me slightly cynical. I'd rather reform private banking and have some public elements to it than completely go over to a public banking system.
2: What would stop private investors from, in that kind of scenario, from putting their money forward? Why would you need the government to actually choose the winners and the losers under that type of regime?
0: We wouldn't be choosing winners and losers. The idea of the government would create the money at some set percentage rate, and the private banks would get that money as a deposit, which they'd lend out of. And when they went out of the money, they couldn't lend any more. And they'd be paying a right for the government for having the money. The positive money proposals are fairly sophisticated as are the ones with the american monetary institute they know the need for the government for the money supply to expand so i'm not criticizing them on that front at all uh, i'm just thinking that there are there are problems in how fast and how slow various times the money supply would expand and i can just see the banking sector in exploiting it because i just don't believe bureaucrats are going to get the amounts right and when they get it wrong what I expect will happen is the banks will then say look what a stuff up the politicians and the bureaucrats are making everything was much better when we were in the system and by the time they get to say it of course people who saw what a catastrophe it was when they were in the system won't be around to say hang on a second that wasn't right and we'll be finding ourselves back abolishing 100 percent money in the same way we abolished Glass-Steagall so I would rather find a way of preventing them getting the power in the first place and this comes back to, again, to those ideas about trying to limit speculation. If you'd brought in a program like 100% money and you didn't prevent banks funding speculation on asset prices, then you could easily have another asset price bubble and bust in a 100% money environment. It isn't enough just to say, let's hand over government money creation just to the government. You've also got to stop the banks looking at it and saying, well, how do we make a fast buck? And the fastest is to finance people gambling on asset prices. Let's do that. And we end up with like, you know, like a cigarette tobacco type syndrome for the financial system.
1: I guess I'll take a walk tonight. I know that I can't sleep. And I won't go to bed at all. I've just laid there and weeped. Instead, I'll make our favorite spot. That's what I think older. I got no smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee. Smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee all night long. Wandering the house, a love so right could suddenly go wrong. I catch the next bus out of town, but I got to be nervous
2: You created a model on how debt-created money works. If you were to read some types of economics, you hear about how we're all indentured slaves, that we need to create new money to pay off the old money that's been created. You show that that was basically a mix up of a stock
0: and a flow. Where well, Schumpeter's brilliant, I really do recommend people read The Theory of Economic Development by Schumpeter. And he gives the, you know, the way in which you can actually generate profit out of borrowed money uh, in terms of innovation. And my technical work on that was to show, first of all, that even without innovation, you can make a profit out of borrowed money because All you've got to do is repay the interest on the debt. The debt is a stock. Profit you get out of it is a flow. And so long as you have a sufficiently productive economy, the flow is big enough. The interest charge is 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 quite a small charge. Can be quite a small charge on the profit flow. It's mistaking the stock of the debt, which is dollars, for the flow of profit, which is dollars per unit of time, versus interest payments per unit of time and repayments per unit of time. That, that was a very simple confusion, but one that seemed to have stimulated economics for 30 years. Uh, but certainly we can we can get out of it because that borrowed money is what actually, as Trimplater argues, is what enables entrepreneurs to have demand they wouldn't otherwise have. And therefore, the ideas they have, which change our productive capabilities, uh, become manifest. Without, without that borrowed money, you wouldn't have the entrepreneurs either.
2: If, if the economy is growing, though, and there's a set stock of money in your model that you did, you would have a deflationary pressure there, would
0: you? Yeah, you would. The only way you could have growth would be by deflation. And actually, Manuel Campaglio, who used to work for the New Economic Foundation, has done a lovely little model in Benzim, which is accessible from the New Economic Foundation webpage, where he shows precisely that argument that if you don't have growth in the level of money, then you don't have growth in the economy either, particularly. You can get a bit of it but it tends to be very slow and halting. And again, Schumpeter makes this argument verbally very, very well that if you don't have a growing level of money, you won't have much growth in the economy either.
2: And that's just because of the deflationary yeah. pressure on the way down. The only,
0: the only way to get out of it is deflation, but that tends to be a very rare experience in capitalism in general and not one which actually leads to innovation.
2: So what stops the central bank in the case of the Fed in America, from continuously pushing extra money into the financial sector to keep asset prices sufficiently high all the way throughout this crisis?
0: Well, nothing stops them. This is the trouble. They can keep on doing it, and so long as you have neoclassical economists running the place, that's what they're likely to do. They have this belief that, in Vinaki's case, he believes that rising share prices give you what's called the wealth effect. With a higher wealth effect, consumers will spend more, and it will make the economy recover. That's the analysis they're using to justify trying to get a positive impact on asset prices. They're also trying to stop house prices falling further. Same sort of logic. Rising houses, people feel wealthier, they spend more, and that'll give us an economic recovery. So I've actually got people in, in charge of policy believing we need asset price bubbles to cause the economy to grow well. It's actually asset price bubbles, which are debt financed, that cause the problem in the first place. So we've got to stop asset price bubbles. The austerity programs in Europe are really making the situation worse, and they're not necessary. An alternative policy of government spending could actually be tried, and certainly have better impact than the austerity programs.
2: With the Marxist viewpoint, they would look at the austerity as a way to attack the working class. What are your opinions on the likelihood of, of this?
0: Well, it's in that front, I agree with the Marxists. You know, the the whole aura is that people who didn't only benefited in a very indirect way from the bubble uh, are now ones who are paying the aftermath of the bubble. So it's it's adding to the inequality in the whole society and likely to radicalise people. And of course, the trouble is that sort of radicalisation works left and right. It doesn't just go in one direction. So when you saw, you know, the fascist party in in Greece coming from nowhere to getting 7% of the vote, that's a sign of what happens when you make the working both not benefit from the boom and then pay for the slump. Because the elites, social elites they see, end up espousing you know, progressive views about social policy as well, that's where a lot of the racist backlash and the you know, anti-female backlash come from as well. So the terrible thing is these policies end up discrediting progressive views elsewhere because the people who react to them are believing that with progressive views goes austerity programs for the poor.
2: In the Great Depression in the 30s, there was 25% unemployment, people were destitute, but there was lots of oil left in the ground and iron ore to be turned into cars. Something was stopping all this from happening. This is the dysfunction of a financial and monetary system
0: part of capitalism. Yes, it is. It does come down to the financial sector. But at the same time, there's another capitalism which we we tend to forget, is that it's been the fastest growing and and the most innovation-inspiring social system we've ever had. It's a good thing because you look at the the technology we currently use, there's there's no period in human history where technology has evolved as fast as it has under capitalism. But, of course, we're growing faster than the economy, than the planet can accommodate. So at some stage, we're going to have to have a more nuanced approach to it and say that capitalism alone, even though it's got problems of, of slumps and crises, it's also got problems of growing too quickly. There's a complex couple of centuries ahead of us to cope with this if we're going to survive on the ecosystem without destroying its capacity to support us.
2: Inherent in all of this is Jevons' paradox, which deals with how we deal with efficiency. So when we have a new, more efficient cooker, we don't retire that extra saving that we have from the efficient cooker. We basically spend the money that we saved on it on on something else. Yeah. Is this this nature of money... Does this essentially lead us to our over exploitation of environmental and resources?
0: If you have a sole objective of profit, then you know, one of the ways you can profit more is to privatize your gains and socialize your losses. If the profits the only, only arbiter, then it'll grow more rapidly than the biosphere can support. So we've got to also have a regard to the capacity of the biosphere to support life. And that's something which is completely lacking from conventional economic thought and the way we run capitalism as well, because people, most people aren't even aware of the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, I, I laugh when I saw so all the global warming skepticism because one essential point out of simple entropy, if we keep on growing at the rate we are in about, I think, about 250 or 300 years, just simply by the energy output we're having at the moment and extrapolate that in the future, the surface temperature of the Earth will be about the same as that as the sun. Now, it's pretty hard to live in that temperature, so we simply can't keep on growing at the rate we're growing right now, and therefore we can't rely upon a system which depends upon growth being sustained at the same pace forever and develop something which is rather cleverer than capitalism. And certainly at the moment, we're not showing signs of being that clever.
2: And is, is money a part of the problem as well? Oh, yeah. Do you see yeah, a future yeah.
0: for a non-monetary economy? That's very difficult to consider. I'd, I'd say we, we, it's one of the great advantages of monetary depersonalization and globalization of, of results. I mean, if you look back on David Grave's view beautiful job of this in debt the first 5,000 years we actually functioned at a credit society way way back then but we'd all keep track of the credit because there's only 150 of us or less in each each society and interfaces with other societies were manifest through leaders who themselves would know 10 or 15 other societies and know what the relation should be and so on when we're talking in terms of 7 billion people on the planet you can't keep that complexity in your mind and we do need some sort of non-personal way of keeping tally and transferring knowledge and products and so on between each other. So whatever we do, we'll have to have that non-personal component, and that is the fundamental strength of money.
2: I've heard it said of Marx that his his great work was as a theorist of capitalism in Das Kapital. He tried to describe the workings of the system as he found it. Do you consider your own work in the same vein, trying to describe the actual system of capitalism?
0: Yeah. I'm not seeing myself as a reformer. I mean, I think you can only reform what you understand. And if there's anything obvious about the current situation, we don't understand capitalism. So I mean, a lot of people have, you know, a bit positive money. Uh, the American uh many others, uh, even a lot of the Austrians, see themselves as reformers first and foremost, not either to describe the system we're in first of all. So at least we've got a chance of getting our reforms right.
2: So I, I suppose the obvious question then is, do you consider yourself a
0: capitalist? <laughs> um. I consider myself, first and foremost, an evolutionist. I think I I see human society and the whole planetary system and the universe itself as an evolutionary system and just describing that evolutionary system and being part of it at the same time. But certainly I've I've ended up becoming more of a a fan of, of, of certainly the the good aspects of capitalism, which are the extent to which it promotes innovation and individual spontaneity. I, I suppose, in a sense, I'm a a blend of a a capitalist and an anarchist and people don't appreciate the sense which anarchism is an element of capitalist thinking the the trouble is that we've had a myth of anarchy leading to stability when in fact anarchy leads to chaos chaos doesn't have to be destructive it can be creative at the same time so i'm sort of caught in that whole world and i often find that i i I get on best with both rampant working-class socialists and rampant industrial engineering capitalists. And that's a pretty strange balance, but it seems to be the way that I am. That is a strange balance.
2: So you're also one of the few economists on the right or the left that takes peak oil and its implications seriously. What is it about the economic profession that can't deal with this topic in a serious
0: manner? It's just because they just don't have any real understanding of physical dynamics. This is what this is. is if you, only if you don't understand that we are really a society living on free energy. Can you even believe that we can keep on going as we are right now? The belief that they can simply say, well, we'll get, we've been out of oil, find something else, we'll, we'll replace it with technology. Uh, you you get to the point where you, you simply can't find anything as efficient as oil uh, and as portable as oil for energy production and as free as oil. Technology can't make up for that fundamental gap between energy in versus energy out. The lack of awareness of that issue is, is something which is ingrained in economics, whereas if you do an engineering course, you learn this, this, you know, the laws of thermodynamics. You know the laws are, There's a beautiful way of describing the laws of saying that the laws are uh, you can't win, you can't break even, and you, you can't even leave the game.
2: Or as Woody Allen in one of his films said about the second law of thermodynamics, everything turns to shit.
1: What's the rush? I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm I'm just. I'm over anxious because I like you a lot. Oh, dear. Michael, what can I say? I haven't made love, you know, in such a long time. Mm -hmm. My marriage, I told you, was, was dead for years. I don't know why. Oh, yes, I do. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Sooner or, or later, everything turns to show. That's my phrasing, not the encyclopedia the <laughs> Britannica. It's yeah, strange, too, because often one doesn't even see it happening. I did. That's the part that kills me.
0: And it's a question of realising that's going to happen, so you've got to manage the shit. Now, I'm not the tidiest person on the planet by any stretch of imagination, but I'm aware we need to be managing the shit in, in human society if we're going to continue having one, because economists believe everything can be efficient, and they have this almost like a Maxwell's Demon vision of how the economy operates. If you believe Maxwell's Demon applies in the economy, you're not going to understand that it's impossible in physics. So what are your thoughts about the next 100 years of
2: life on the planet?
0: Uh, pretty bad for the next 50. I think we're going to go through... The, the limits to growth predictions, which were there was going to be a crisis occurring sometime between 2030 and 2070 uh, and manifesting itself in any one of a number of ways, but either resource depletion or massive pollution or disease outbreak, I think is entirely likely to happen. We're likely to see a very large plunge in human population. Again, as the limits to growth people predicted back in 1973, coming out of one of those crises, I I think we'll come through it and we survive. We seem to be a species that only learns through making mistakes. The ones who have made a mistake, a big enough one, it tends to become part of our thinking and we then move on, but only after the crisis. So I'm expecting us to go through the financial crisis, which is a far smaller problem than the ecological crises, hit the ecological crises as well, go through a horrendous period as a species, come out on the other side. So I call myself a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist.
2: Well, thanks very much for being on the show today, Steve. Thank you. Look forward to hearing
0: it uh, when you've uh, tidied up some of my coffins and ladders. And the Skype connection. <laughs>
1: Grab your coat
0: and get your hand.
1: Leave your worry on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street.
2: On this episode, you, you heard the theme tune Shine On You Crazy Scumbag by Clive Starr, the trailer from the dreadful Peter Sellers film The Party, and an excerpt from the US War Department film Why We Fight. You also heard Lefty Frizzell singing Cigarettes and Coffee Blues, and Judy Davis and Liam Neeson discussing the laws of thermodynamics in the Woody Allen classic. Husbands and Wives, accompanied by Louis Armstrong and his Potato Head Blues. You are now listening to Willie Nelson singing On the Sunny Side of the Street. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.